First Peter 2, 11-12 Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Well, good morning, everyone. And once again, oh, wow, I didn't expect you to say it back. <laughs> Welcome again to Christ the King Church. Uh, for those of you who are visiting um, or simply do not know who I am, uh, my name is Tyler. I'm not the pastor here. Uh, I am the pastoral resident, uh, if you will, the assistant to the pastor. Um, so again, welcome. Uh, bow your heads with me. Uh, let's pray. Sovereign Lord, we thank you that we are able to sing and to praise your name uh, amongst um, others who are in your body. Lord, it is a blessing that we should not take for granted. As we continue on, Lord, and to worship you in the word, uh, I ask, Lord, that you would speak through me as a vessel, um, that the hearts of the hearers here will be softened to it, uh, Lord, that they be encouraged, that they would be edified, that they would be convicted, but above all, Lord, that they would give you glory. It is in your name we pray. Amen. So, almost 400 years ago, give or take, in a dank, dark cell in England, a political prisoner by the name of John Bunyan wrote a little book about the Christian life. Perhaps you have heard of it. It is called The Pilgrim's Progress. It is an allegorical book. It is uh, fictional to some extent, uh, with specific interests in the, uh, the characters of the book. So, for instance, you have uh, the protagonist's good friend. Uh, he's very faithful. His name is Faithful. Uh, you have Lord Hate Good, a judge who, would you believe it, hates good. Uh, and the story's primary protagonist, his name is Christian. Very on the nose, Bunyan. We follow Christian as he journeys through a dangerous land towards uh, his true home, uh, the celestial city. Heaven, the New Jerusalem. Uh, it is honestly my favorite book uh, besides Scripture, and I would recommend it all to all believers. Uh, read it that they would at least read it once um, in this life as they are making their own pilgrimage uh, to heaven. Christian, uh, but of note this morning, uh, let us quickly consider a quote found at the very beginning of the book. A uh, Christian uh, has learned that the world as he knows it is doomed and it's to be destroyed. And so he has returned to his home to tell his wife and his children uh, the terrible news. Quote, At this his family was astounded, not because they believed that what he told them was true, but because they thought that he had become insane due to some sickness in the head. They put him to bed, believing he would awake back to his senses in the morning. Yet when he awoke... He was worse off than he was the previous night. Now they became hardened. They turned to mocking and arguing with him. Sometimes they would deride, sometimes they would chide, and sometimes they would neglect him. Therefore, 
he would stay in his room to pray for and pity them. End of quote. Christian had been given a terrible truth, and his family believed that he had become insane, that perhaps he has lost his marbles uh, or had been deceived in some Ponzi scheme or into some dangerous worldview. But as we find out in the book, he had not lost his mind. No, he had actually gained it. And because he had gained his senses, he had become to his family, to his neighbors, to his friends, and to the society and the world at large, a pilgrim, hence the name, Pilgrim's Progress. He had become an alien, a stranger, an exile where once he was at home. And at peace. Now, for the past few weeks, we as a body have been working our way through uh, the Catholic epistles, uh, specifically here in First Peter. Uh, the Apostle Peter has reminded us in the previous two chapters uh, that we have been brought into a new life. A, a, we've been made anew. Uh, we've been born again. Uh, he has called us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, as we see in verse 9. But this week, and the weeks following thereafter, uh, Peter has begun to transition away from uh, dom- dominantly talking theologically to his readers as Christians, but now he's slowly turning uh, his attention towards the world, those who are non-believers. Whereas before we focused on our relationships amongst the body, how we should be um, treating each other uh, in love, as uh, we heard about two weeks ago, I think it was, when we found that it was the final apologetic if we were to love each other as Christ has loved us. Now we are turning to how we are interacting with the world that is outside, that is often hostile towards us. So, let us examine the three teachings that we can be found, we can find here in this transitional passage, these whole two verses, verses 11 and 12. The first one is our identity, the second, our warfare, and thirdly, our mission. Starting out with the first portion, our identity. Now, Peter, being a very good pastor, knows how to uh, get his believers, to get, to get his, the readers that he is talking to, uh, to listen to him and to follow his commands. To, uh, he is grounding his, extortion, his extortions, exhortions, exhortations, precisely in the strength from wherein they shall be able to actually do them. Uh, namely, who they, who we are, in Christ. We find this in the very first words he's beginning his, this, this, these two verses with. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. To a certain extent, what Peter has done here is simply summarize what he's been talking about this entire time. That we are beloved uh, in the Greek, it's built off of the word agape. I'm sure you've heard this word often if you've been in churches uh, for any substantial amount of time. Uh, the love that God has uh, towards us uh, in Christ uh, is actually the same, um, the same word, the same kind of root is found in uh, John's 
John the Apostle's gospel, uh, when he refers to himself only as the one whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Primarily, firstly, we are the beloved of God. And it is important that we do not uh, quickly pass over this word or, um, shall we say, throw it into the trash or, in, or just into the back of our mind as something we just say, okay, yeah, we get that, move on. Uh, the tendencies that I have often seen, uh, both in myself and other believers, um, often fall into uh, two uh, categories, two camps. Uh, one, those who um, are apathetic towards this truth, uh, they throw it around as if it has little consequence. Right? We, we've, I, I, in my own church experiences, I've been in churches where um, Jesus loves you, that, that phrase has been almost beat to death. Um, and, it's, and it seems to have been has lost its substance because of the fact that it has become almost apathetically thrown around. I heard it once said by a pastor, uh, just a sidebar, uh, that if you are evangelizing to a, to a non-believer um, and you tell them only that, oh, Jesus loves you, the response of, the, of at least I know I, I would have responded with, well, oh, he loves me? That's great. I love me. So this is just, this is just an addition to more love, right? I don't, that's great. I love that. Fantastic. That's one of the first camps you may fall into. Or secondly, you are neglecting this truth. Choosing instead to throw yourself into depression, into despair, uh, into the pit of darkness uh, because you believe you are unlovely. Um, I see this also in my own life. Uh, when I can get into this rut of a uh, feeling of, oh, I'm a wretch, I'm a worm, uh, God doesn't love me, I'm terrible. Um, even worse than all those things, um, I cannot come to Christ because I am so unlovely. Both of these things um, are not uh, wholly untrue. Jesus does love us. We are, to some extent, made from the dust of the earth. But to go into any of those two directions too much, uh, to sway too much in, onto that pendulum swing, well, then you would not be able to do that which Peter is about to command us to do. Peter has no qualms naming us, beloved, for truthfully, Christian, that is what you are. That is who you are, if indeed you are in him. It is the banner flying above your head. It is a stamp on your forehead that you are the beloved of God. To neglect this is to spit upon the face of Christ as the soldiers did on his way to Calvary, viewing him as nothing more as an addition to their own, to, to whatever life um, if even an addition, it might as well be a subtraction. So without being beloved, there can be no urging from Peter to his readers. And so just as important to this as we see in 
verse 11, is that, Beloved, I urge, you, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So if beloved, being the beloved of God, is the primary identity that we have in Christ, then if you were to turn the coin on the other side, this would be the, um, the other um, facet of our identity, that we are also sojourners and exiles in this world. Um, other translations that you may be reading through um, might translate these words differently. They may have words such as pilgrims, uh, aliens, immigrants, strangers, foreigners, etc. You get the point. Uh, the sense is here. Um, as Peter said in verse 1 of chapter 1, uh, that he is writing to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout the world. Not only is he talking to his readers, he also is regarding us in that same manner. This isn't just to the first century uh, churches that he's writing to. No, they are also us. We too are strangers or aliens in this world. Think back, if you would, if you had been here back in the beginning of the year, to when we were in Genesis. Uh, Abraham, in chapter 23, proclaimed himself a stranger in exile in the land that he was promised to inherit. If that does not suffice, in Hebrews 11.13, it is said of all those who died in the Old Testament that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We are both beloved in God and also strange weirdos, strange exiles to those outside of the church. And this is a new identity. This is not something we had beforehand. Uh, We are now able to see past. um, We are actually able to see as we just sung about, that this world has grown strangely dim. It has is, it is lost some um, luster, some, some sense of being all that there is and all that there ever will be. As Martin Lloyd-Jones stated in his exposition of the same passage, a wonderful pastor, wonderful expositor, the Christian sees through the illusion of this world that they are bound for another and such as we are, for as we are in Christ, right, if we are in him, if we are united to him, then therefore we must say as well, like him, that our kingdom is not of this world. It's nothing but shadows and vapors quickly passing away. Um, Ecclesiastes would put it that it is uh, vanity, it is futile. Of course, this is not to say that... This is not real, right? That you should just completely forsake everything in this world and say, well, it's, it's not real, therefore I can do whatever I want. That's not the point. That's not, that's not what we're talking about when we say it's an illusion. Um, it, it, in, in a, another word to describe this could be rather, um, it's, a del, it's a delusion. That outside of Christ, we are, um, as, Roman, as Paul says in Romans, we are constantly suppressing the truth constantly lying to ourselves, constantly blind, always. 
And so I must ask this question. This is a question I'm asking myself often. Very practically speaking, do we live our life with this truth in mind? Have we become so tethered to this world that the world cannot even notice that you are not of it? Have we forgotten that we are but temporary residents here, pilgrims passing through exiles? That a, a temporary resident in a foreign land, which is what it is now to us, is not likely to adopt the customs of the land in which they are in, which we are in. That our standards, our values, our entire lifestyles have been radically changed. We are not who we once were. Now, if we have forgotten these things, which I do, it seems, on the daily, we can take heart. Peter had to remind his own beloved readers of the same truth. And so be reminded, beloved, that we are but strangers in, in exile on this side of the grave, looking forward to that city that is not built by human hands. So this is our identity. If this is our identity, again, how should we um, respond? How should we view the world around us if it is, um, in some sense, now um, brought into a new light? We, we, we see, finally, this world for what it is. Well, that brings us to our section uh, here, the second section, our warfare. Now, to Peter, the identity of, of the believers uh, that he is writing to was tantamount to understanding these urgings, these commands he's about to give. Right? That, that they need to understand this to be able to be equipped to engage with the non-believing world at large. If we do not see this in, this in its true light, if we do not accept, if we do not affirm that we are beloved and strange exiles in this world, then we are not prepared to go out into the world and to give them something that is actually worth giving. And there shall be resistance. Uh, this uh, Peter has and will continue to promise. And oftentimes it is our first thought that we look to the outside world as our greatest enemies, that they are, they are the problem, uh, that, that if we can just either uh, remove them from our sight or eliminate them in what ways we can, uh, then everything will just be good and better. Um, yet, uh, Peter here is, about to, is, is going to begin actually with the greatest adversary we face, the greatest enemy. It's ourselves. Uh, more specifically, of course, the, the old self. Um, before we may engage this fallen world, we have to engage with the fallen self. We are beloved, and being so, he exhorts us, seeing as we are sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This is his um, urging, his, his command to us. That as we are beloved, abstain. Um, however, it, it, we should not mistake uh, Peter's words essentially to be just to be against um, Physical sins, those that affect the body, specifically like, like this thing, um, 
it, it, they are obviously deadly, you know, lust and sexual sin and all these things that, that uh, gluttony, those things that actually physically harm us, obviously we should abstain from those things. Um, but supremely, as he said in chapter 1, verse 14, uh, we are to fight against the passions of our former ignorance. As he says here, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Those two things are connected in Peter's uh, mind. And so we are at war, uh, not necessarily with only a physical foe, uh, but honestly, primarily a spiritual one. Uh, one that uh, affects us first before we even could see out in the world. It's hiding and is crouching at our door. Uh, this, 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 um, this sin that is of our old nature. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, the very well-known verse, uh, we do, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, we are to war against it. And this warfare is, is not quite as Peter thought it was when he pulled a sword and tried to chop a dude's ear off. Um, no, it's actually by abstaining, uh, uh, restraining yourself, ourselves, from the old um, paths that we once walked. Um, Paul, again, in Romans 13, um, urges us to make no provision for the flesh. And so in a sense, we, we should be guarding ourselves, remaining vigilant, standing fast against the enemies of our soul the things that are waging war against it, that seek to destroy it. It is not a, a passive enemy. It is very active. Constantly, day by day. The moment you awake and the moment you go to bed. And so Peter has endeavored to again remind his readers to war against their old ways, as he did back in chapter 1. Specifically, again, because they are not of this world any longer, again, it is our, our warfare is directly related to our identity in Christ. He could not say these things to us, Peter speaking, if we are not beloved, if we are not strangers and exiles in this world. Because then they wouldn't be former passions of our ignorance. They would be our passions of ignorance. In a sense, um, Christ's work, our, our union with him, is the cause, and this is the effect that we are to abstain. And we cannot express this truth enough, this, this, this assurance, this grounding in our identity first. Because if we only focus on the negative um, sense of, of action, trying to abstain all the time, we will fall short of that standard every time. We cannot follow the law as it is needing to be, to be followed. I grew up in a church environment um, that was very dedicated to um, holiness, to being separated, to be brought apart from the world. And it seemed like every single sermon was based upon not who we are in Christ, 
and then, therefore, how we should live, but more so just simply about keeping some rules, that this is nothing more than a rule book to live your life by. And God forbid you don't live your life by it. It is a grave error to place the sole responsibility, the primary duty, at the fate of a man or a woman not empowered by the Spirit to do the works that are expected of believers. I heard it once said by, another, by a former pastor of mine, why would you expect those who are not Christians to act Christian? But of course, believers, Christians, we are empowered by the Spirit. Because our identity is now in Christ, you have the exact same Spirit that resides in Him. And by the Spirit, He shall perfect the work that He started, as He promised us He would. That we will not complete the work that was begun in the Spirit by the flesh, but we would complete the work that was started in the Spirit by the Spirit. And so, being assured that we are God's beloved, Peter is able, is expectant, is, is confident that he can command us to remove any and all attempts of our old man trying to keep its way back in. And he believes that it's actually possible. That it's not impossible. And so, moving on into verse 12. If abstaining, if, if restraining ourselves, if, if simply standing fast is uh, what we are not to do, right? If, if, we're, if we're not to uh, engage ourselves in the passions of our former ignorances, of, our, of, um, of the flesh, then what should we do, right? Uh, abstaining is, in a sense, a negative. It is something that we are to do negatively, um, that we would not act in such a manner, but he, Peter follows it up correctly right afterwards with a positive command, one that we should do instead. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Um, so I'm going to very quickly break down um, a, few of the, a few of these words in this passage just because I think when I first read it, it seemed a little strange. Uh, starting with Gentiles. Now, as we've, as we've seen, uh, Peter is not talking um, specifically to a, a, Jewish, a purely Jewish community of believers. There are Gentiles in this body that he's writing to. And so it, I, I, it strikes us as very strange that he would then, in the same manner, saying, yeah, by the way, um, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Like those guys out there, yeah, don't, those, they're, they're terrible, right? Don't. Keep, keep yourselves safe from them. But I, I think it's important. This is, this is, in some sense, a theological um, teaching. But by calling the outside world Gentiles, the, uh, um, in a sense, um, those who are um, not God's people, he is saying that who he is talking to currently are God's people. Again, their identity. That, they have been, that, that if they are Jew or if they are Greek or if they are whatever um, race or ethnicity under the sun, they are united together. They are grafted onto the vine of Christ. That's one word to kind of tackle. 
Now for the next one, conduct. Uh, conduct, um, we can also translate this word as behavior, uh, is again attaching itself to our identity. Do you see the theme here? I'm, I'm hoping, I'm trying to really beat it over your heads. Um, but it's important. I, I, can't, I can't, again, I cannot stress this enough. Um, consider, if you will, for a moment, uh, who we are being called to become like, right? Um, obviously, the answer is the oldest answer in, in the book, right? It's, it's Christ. It's, it's our Lord Jesus. We are called to be like him. And so let's think for a moment about what, it, what of how Christ conducted himself while on this earth. Throughout the Gospels again and again, we see someone who uh, always treated his enemies with, in a sense, respect, putting the Pharisees to the side slightly because they were very prideful um, and he had to use a different tact to um, deal with them. But all the way to the cross, Christ never once prayed for, for the Lord to wrathfully smite these evil men who were putting him to death. Right? Never once did he treat those whom he made from dust as if they were only dust. When he looked at his rebellious uh, people, his beloved city, Jerusalem, he wept for them. He was filled with compassion. Always he conducted himself honorably before the wicked world he had come to reconcile to God. And so conversely, if our Lord is truthfully our Lord, we are commanded to follow uh, in the same manner. This is what Peter's getting at in a sense. Not just some... Um, abstract sense of honor of some abstract you know teaching that you can find in any religion no he's he's directly connecting this to the honor that was specifically seen in christ and christ alone and if we do this if, if if we if we do follow this command to abstain from the four passions of the flesh and now keep our conduct honorable amongst the, the watching world, uh, they will turn against us. Uh, not in a sense of they're going to get you know, weapons and, and come out and, and, and you know, put us in the street and massacre us, although they, they haven't, it has happened in the past. Um, but they, in some senses, uh, they are very acutely aware of our identity, uh, specifically that we are strangers and exiles. They view us in this light. That, that, we're, that, that something is not, something's off there. Something they do not actually, technically speaking, uh, like. Because it's different from them. And human nature is often that we do not like those who are different from us. The people we once were are no longer our people if we are in Christ. Uh, yet we do not treat them as if we are any better than them. For those who were not our people were once our people. We should not, as, as the Pharisee does in the parable of the Pharisee and the taxpayer, um, pray our, our prayers in a sense, conducting ourselves in a sense, um, saying, oh, thank God I'm not like that just dirty sinner taxpayer over there. 
Oh, thank the Lord. Man, I chose right. So good. No, we're to, to, to conduct ourselves as the taxpayer did, beating our chest and saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And we are not to abandon them to their fates, beloved. Hiding in our churches or in our homes turned fortresses uh, to keep others out and keep others away. It is the nature of our culture to, to, in some sense, continuing to distance ourselves because it is very difficult to live with others. I have a roommate, I know. Um, it is not easy. And yet we, are, we don't just abandon them. We don't just say, well, sorry, you know, I tried. I, I uh, told you that Jesus was Lord once or twice. I guess that's it. I guess you're, I'm good. I'm, I'll see you later. Have fun. That's not how, that is not how Christians throughout the centuries have conducted themselves. And that's not how Peter is expecting us to conduct ourselves. As pilgrims in this world, we were to behave ourselves, to conduct ourselves in a way as Christ conducted himself. Right? As Christ descended into this fallen, hostile, dark, and depraved, despairing world, so we are to go into this fallen, hostile, dark, and despairing world. Right? The, the, the common adage I've, I'm sure many of you know is that we are um, in the world but not of the world. And so I, I hear the question potentially asked, um, what is the end of this? Is it just you know, this conducting ourselves to, to engage in this warfare by staining from our former passions of the flesh and now keeping our conduct honorable amongst the uh, Gentiles, amongst the unbelieving world? You know, what gives? What's the point of that? Is it just because I want to look good or, or because I just want to be good? Well, again, Peter, for the win, uh, says directly right after, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Like Christ, we do not live righteously for our own sakes. It is for their sakes. Supremely, of course, it is for God's glory, as we see at the end of that passage. And so this turns us to the third portion of our passage this morning, our mission. Now recently I was listening to a podcast uh, where a French Christian philosopher, that's a mouthful, uh, here's an even bigger mouthful, uh, Guillaume Bignon, uh, pardon my French, uh, gave his testimony to a pastor that he was discussing things with. Um, Bignon grew up Roman Catholic in France, um, yet, uh, as is often the case in, in Western Europe and in Western society at large, outside of the Bible Belt, um, he lived predominantly his life uh, really as an atheist, um, um, as was the course of things. Um, that was, of course, until he fell in love with an American uh, Christian woman. And he fell very fond of that woman. Um, and she although she liked him, though she was also fond of him, uh, declined to allow a relationship to truly be pursued based upon her Christian conviction that uh, what does light have to do with darkness? 
And yet, even though he, she, she rejected him in a loving, um, non-hateful way, he hated her rejection. In fact, it fueled his already, uh, already presumed presumptions, his thoughts that Christian love, marriage, and sexual ethics are uh, demonstrably uh, repressive, intolerant, um, and impossible. Uh, he hated its, um, its foreignness. Uh, he, he mentions that in this testimony uh, that he went to a pastor and he said, who are you to tell me who I can love, who I can have relations with? No, I, you, you don't get to tell me that. And dialoguing with that pastor, constantly um, attacking this faith that this, this pastor had, uh, never once did this pastor... Uh, respond in a sarcastic, a, a um, apathetic way towards this man. No, he always responded calmly, patiently, honoring him despite not being honored. And by the grace of God and the patience of that French pastor and of the love of that American woman, Bignong became transformed in the gospel the identity that he once had as a, as a very knowledgeable, very intellectual, very um, smart guy in France, he had traded to be a stranger in an exile, the very thing he hated. Yet it was attractive to him. Whatever that was, it was attracting him. It was, something about it was good, despite the constant repugnancy that he had towards it. And so this is the same hope that Peter's final words are during our time here in verse 12. Uh, his desire, as one commentator put it, is, was that unbelievers will be compelled to admit that the lifestyle of believers is morally beautiful. And this admission will bring them to saving faith so that God will be glorified in the day of judgment. Again, as we saw a few weeks ago when, we, uh, when Kevin talked about the final apology being the love that we have for each other, the apologetic to the world, um, I don't have any quick or, uh, quip or, or uh, smart way of putting it, but essentially the apologetic to the world is that we actually give them respect as they are made in God's image and that we are no better truthfully than they are. Our Lord proclaims in his Sermon on the Mount that we had read earlier, that you, Christian, are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be, pe- be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You can see the echoes here that Peter is talking about. This, this, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, to beat it again upon your head, it is foundationally um, grounded in their identity as Christians. They are salts 
on this earth. They are light as he is light. And so the identity we have been given, uh, that, that we are disciples of Christ, is, is for a specific reason. It's not just so that you can um, have a fire insurance or um, just kind of live a somewhat peaceful life because, beloved, Peter does not live a very peaceful life. Uh, as he's writing this letter, um, which is about 62, 64 AD, um, the latest date that we can presume he's, he has been martyred by the emperor, uh, Rome, Roman, Roman emperor Nero, is uh, his, 64. AD 64. And so this man is writing um, during the midst of persecution. And yet he is commanding us in this way, not for necessarily their own sakes, although it is for their sakes, but also for those who are persecuting them. Peter has learned that if Christ's kingdom was of this world, that he, would, that he and, and disciples and all of them would fight for it. You think that the world that crucified Christ is going to be kind to you? At best or at worst, depending on how you see it, they will be, at, they will be apathetic. It's not, it's not like this, this gospel that we carry, this, this uh, new life we have been given, this new identity we've been given, is either something that is, is, is evil, that is repressive, that is intolerant, as we have seen in our world today, being heralded as bigots, and, and you can fill in the blank. No. Uh, they will not be kind to you necessarily unless you have hidden the light under a covering, under a basket, unless you have removed it from its stand so that the house that you are around, that you are in, cannot see? Or, and perhaps the most um, dreadful of all of these, is that you never had light to begin with. And so, despite the fact that Peter is very aware that this, this, this world that is watching this watching world that we find ourselves in is oftentimes hostile towards us. The response is not to uh, necessarily uh, grab our swords and go and just start um, you know, slaying the infidels. That's not, that's, not what Christ, that's not what Christ did, and that's not what that Peter is calling us to. No, all of this is done missionally. That perhaps the unbeliever might, maybe. It's not, even an assur- it's not even an assurance that every single one will. But that they may turn to Christ. Their eyes being opened to the truth of the gospel that we carry. This light, this marvelous light has been given into us. That they would glorify God on the day, in the day of visitation. Very quick note, uh, the day of visitation 
is of my opinion that that is the day of, the, of, of, of judgment, the final day, essentially. And Peter's hope, Peter's desire, as we saw earlier, is that by our actions, right, that, that this watching world sees, they will on the one hand malign us, but on the other hand, if they truthfully were to um, speak to us or, 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 or get past the presumption that they have already been given or, or, or made for themselves, they might turn to Christ, that they would glorify God as our call, as the command at the end of the day, built upon our identity in Christ, that we are to be missional in our lifestyles, honorable to those who uh, hate us. If you hear these questions, or these, these commands, and, uh, you say to yourself, as, as, as I often am, am, am finding in my own thoughts that I am certainly none of these things. Uh, that I am probably the worst believer ever, um, and I can't even drive down a highway without um, acting, conducting myself in an inhonorable, dishonorable way. Um, and if you find yourself saying these things, and you are in Christ, well then I, I wish to remind you that you were in perhaps in the greatest company you could ask for. That we will probably, hopefully, prayerfully all say that we have not arrived yet. That we are being made in his image day by day and that these things that are being commanded of us are not impossible. They are possible. But that God still gives grace even in our weaknesses. And so in conclusion, as we close our time here this morning, I want to once again beat the dead horse and remind you of who we are and what we are called to do. You've been given life. You are not your own anymore. We are Christ's. We are beloved in God. He looks at us as a father looks at his beloved children. And yet like Christ, like Abraham, like a Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, like every believer in this world, we are uh, sojourners, uh, enigmas, weirdos to, to, to this world and, and to those who are watching us. But that should not deter us or it, it should not um, dissuade us from doing that which we are being called to do. So again, I leave you with the words of Peter that he, we read last week. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Christian, we are the beloved of God.
Let's pray. Lord, although this is a very um, application-oriented uh, sermon and that we, we, we might find ourselves falling into legalism in an attempt to make these things happen, Lord, do not allow that to take root in our hearts. Let us not view this service purely as this sermon, but Lord, as the entire service we have seen again and again that we are yours. And because we are yours, we have strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And we can go into this world and pity it and pray for and love them even when they do not love us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.